I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. For words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about Batman comics. At least, that's really all I've been doing lately, so if you just started joining, uh, joining in on the show and listening just a couple of months ago, well, I'd understand if you thought this was a Batman podcast, but it's not. Nope. On paper, what I'm supposed to do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows without any particular uh, focus on any one thing, but, well, for reasons that should be relatively obvious, I've been focusing on just one thing. So that one thing, obviously, is Batman, and this is all due in part to, wow, like I say, it should be obvious why I'm doing this, but partly the less obvious thing, partly why I'm doing this, is because I kind of got involved in a fairly intensive Batman reading project, and what I wanted to do, as much as anything, is just talk about the comics that I read and kind of enjoyed. So, sometimes things really are as simple as we want them to be. So, anyway, in relation to that, what I'm going to be talking about today <clears throat> is uh, Batman issues number 518 and 519. It's a really neat uh, two-part story published in 1995 and I've had a real soft spot for this general era of Batman for quite a while now. And the reason for that is because, you know, post-Nightfall, post-Night Quest, post-Night's End, post-Prodigal, post-Zero Hour, things were finally starting to get more or less back to normal with the Batman titles and what normal had been for a goodly bit of 1990, 91, 92, 93 and through there is basically the different Batman books that were being published at that time more or less went back to having their own separate identities from one another, right? So following all of those huge crossovers and storylines and all that fun stuff, Detective Comics became not exactly like hard-boiled, but it became very crime fiction, film noir uh, type of a comic book, right? Uh, Shadow of the Bat was... See, I'll, I'm always tempted to say that it became kind of like Shadow... Uh, Shadow. <laughs> I was about to say Shadow of the Lamb. No, it became uh, sort of like Silence of the Lambs. So it's always tempting to say that, but you know, 
No, it it was a book that reached for and desired a a kind of psychological complexity that Alan Grant is kind of famous for writing. And it really wasn't big on, uh, I don't know, high-flying superhero type stuff, you know? It was more for sort of layered and textured character studies and things like that. And Legends of the Dark Knight, well, that continued, that resumed, I should say, being out of continuity and just, or at least outside of obvious continuity and basically just being its own thing, its own weird, unique little corner of the Batman universe. And then there was <clears throat> Batman, just adjectiveless Batman, the monthly title called Batman. And this was possibly the most interesting of all in as much as it had become this kind of gothic, supernatural horror type of book. And so even if the exact subject matter going on in any given issue wasn't specifically related to gothic supernatural horror, that was still, in a sense, the way that it was drawn. And that kind of permeates the story and just the overall reading experience of any given issue, right? Where you might be reading something that could, on at least in theory, it could have just as easily been published in Detective Comics as a little bit more of a crime fiction type of thing, but it wasn't. It was in Batman, and so because of that, it has a sort of a horror movie vibe to it, even if that maybe wasn't intentional in the script, right? And that's actually a pretty good little lead-in for the comics that I want to talk about today, which, again, are uh, Batman number 518 and 519. Basically, I think you could you could fairly well say that this is a crime story, which, as I say, could just as easily have been published in Detective Comics. You know, there was a two-parter that took place in uh, Batman number 516 and number 517, and which I talked about. You know, I talked about uh, this uh, two-part Batman story uh, back in episode number 135 of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. This was uh, entitled The Actuary and the Sleeper, and basically talked about the this uh, two-part story that took place right after Troika, and basically right as the Batman books were kind of settling back into their new and yet kind of old status quo. And so that, I think, you could fairly well describe that, at least superficially, as a kind of supernatural gothic horror type of story, right? Less so this Black Mask two-parter that we're going to work our way through today. And yet, even though there's arguably kind of a stylistic disconnect between the writing and the art. I don't know why. It could just be nostalgia, guys. But for some reason, I just love this two-part story. You know, and I've been wanting to talk about this for a pretty long time now. And as it happens right now, seemed like a pretty opportune occasion. So here we are. Now, first up, I'm going to be talking about, as I say, uh, Batman number 518. Cover date is May 1995. On sale date is March 14th, 1995. Cover price is a buck fifty. Penciler is Kelly Jones. Inker is John Beatty. Writer is Doug Mensch. Letterer is Todd Klein. Colorist is Adrian Roy. Editor is Denny O'Neill. Story uh, story title is Black Mask, the Spidered Face. Story synopsis. 
goes a little something something like this. Black Mask and the False Face Society continue making moves in the Gotham City underworld. Johnny LaMonica, in the identity of Black Spider, approaches Black Mask requesting that he be allowed to join the False Face Society. Knowing Johnny LaMonica's reputation as a hired killer, Black Mask reluctantly agrees and assigns LaMonica the task of killing anyone at Bruce Wayne's costume party. Anybody except Bruce Wayne, that is. And once that's been done, Black Mask will let him join the False Face Society. Meanwhile, Harvey Bullock gets released from the hospital and rejoins the police force in a admittedly limited role. Speaking of the police, Mayor Kroll meets with Sarah Essen, which is to say Commissioner Gordon's wife, to discuss her views concerning Batman. Later, at Wayne Manor, the Black Spider makes his move and tries to shoot one of Bruce Wayne's guests but gets thwarted by Bruce himself. Batman pursues LaMonica into the forest surrounding Wayne Manor but is forced to let LaMonica escape because police have arrived on the scene responding to shots fired and Batman knows that they're going to have questions for Bruce Wayne. On the final page of this issue, LaMonica meets with Ottoman Turk, his real boss. Mr. Turk reminds LaMonica that his task is to kill the uh, is to kill Black Mask and Johnny promises that he won't fail. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, from the outset, this is actually sort of an historic issue for uh, Batman uh, for reasons that, well, fuck it, I'm not going to speak in riddles, I'll just come right out and say it. This is the last issue of Batman that would be released at the co- at the cover price of a buck fifty, right? Starting in the very next issue that we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes, the price would increase to a buck ninety-five. But I'll circle back to that in just a second. Suffice it to say, there was a price increase that happened, right? As far as this cover is concerned, though, this is a pretty effective cover. It's just, it's one of those covers that doesn't have but jack and shit to do with the story at hand. And Jack left town. But basically, it's Batman surrounded by the False Face Society, all of whom are pointing guns at him, while Black Mask just smugly looks on and smug smugginess, you know? And... It's not the most effective cover illustration that any of us have ever seen, right? That much is obvious. But on its own merits, this is actually a pretty decent cover. I'm not one of those people who deducts points for uh, a given cover not being sufficiently literal. But guys, you need to understand, nothing even remotely like this happens anywhere in this entire two-parter, right? Batman, to the best of my recollection, except for like a very brief moment at the end of the next issue we'll talk about, he's ne- he never really contends with Black Mask's thugs, you know? Does that make sense? So, anyway, overall, this isn't the greatest cover illustration anybody's ever seen. It, I guess it does what it's supposed to do in terms of getting your attention, but uh, I don't know. This isn't... Like I say, this isn't the best cover in Batman's entire history, you know what I mean? So, anyway. From there, we basically get into page one and through there. And it's basically Black Mask. He's monologuing to somebody that is pretty much just not visible, at least to start with. 
uh, to the viewer. He's talking to somebody. We just don't know who yet. So when we find out, you'll get an idea of just how twisted Black Mask truly is. Don't you see? So anyway, but as he's sitting there, he's basically explaining what exactly his his mask offers him, I guess, in terms of almost like a like a spiritual transformation. He basically says, know that the mask destroys one identity while creating another of greater power. As Roman Sionis, I was weak, but as Black Mask, there is no one stronger. With my increased power, I've assembled the largest organization in the history of Gotham's underworld. Common criminals slain, quote-unquote, and reborn behind masks, each with greater power, and all as members of the False Face Society. So, this, in addition to giving us a little bit of a glimpse into Black Mask, I guess, as a character, this get, this also provides new readers, or at least readers who have no idea who the hell Black Mask is, or the fact that he's the head of the False Face Society. This gives new readers sort of entree into the story. <clears throat> and then from there, basically what happens is we see some goons who are quite obviously in the employ of Black Mask. They basically kill a museum watchman, which just from the start, that should kind of tell you something. You know what? This museum doesn't have a security system. They have to rely on a security guard. It's kind of weird. So anyway, but these masked uh, uh, hoodlums, they attack and then murder the security guard. Also, they can steal something from the museum or a bunch of somethings, as it happens, from the museum. And so it's not made completely clear what they're stealing. So what do you want to bet there are going to be answers to that before too long? Yes, indeed, there will be. So, meanwhile, back at Black, uh, Black Mask's headquarters, what we basically see is he's continuing his little monologue, and he's in a room that's surrounded by hundreds, maybe thousands of different type of different types of masks. And it becomes pretty clear in short order that Black Mask, well, he's got a little bit of a mask fetish going on, which says all kinds of freaky shit about him. But one of the sort of, I don't know, like signs of the times, I guess is Black Mask has his wallet on a chain, and the chain is connected to, it looks like, it, it, it's hard to be sure, because uh, what exactly his, the, his wallet chain is connected to is is kind of covered up by his coat, but I assume, if we're going like full 90s here, it would be safety clipped to one of his belt loops. The idea being, it'll be difficult, if not impossible, for somebody to steal your wallet, because it's on a fucking chain, you know? And for those of you who don't remember, or for that matter, have simply chosen to forget, that was kind of a fashionable item in the 90s where uh, people would wear those wallet chains kind of as a fashion accessory. And this is one of those just trends in fashion that, guys, I'm not saying this to, to signal or anything like that. I'm saying it because it really is true. This is one of those styles or trends or whatever you want to call it, fashions, that I just never fucking understood. You know, I thought this was stupid at the time, okay? This isn't like Monday morning quarterback where somebody has like a fashion hangover a few years later and they ask themselves, what the fuck was I thinking? No, 
I'm at, I was asking, what the fuck are you people thinking at the time, okay? I mean, guys, I went to a very safe and very normal public school, you know? And it's not like there was this huge rash of people having their wallets stolen from them, you know? Just didn't happen. And yet, you know, you'd, you'd have these just fucking hipsters running around. We didn't call them that at the time, because I don't really think that term existed at the time. At least not in the popular lexicon. But more or less, that's who they were. Just these fucking emo McHipster types running around, and they'd have... <clears throat> They'd have their, their wallets on a chain, and I just don't fucking get that, you know? I don't get it now. I didn't get it then. I don't think I'll ever get it. It just doesn't make sense. But nevertheless, like I say, it's just kind of a sign of the times, and so for whatever reason, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, Black Mask has his wallet on a chain, and you can see the chain uh, hanging down off of, off of his waist. So for those of you who like detail in your art, well, here you go. So... Getting into page five, it we not only get an idea of Black Mask's origins, I guess, as the Black Mask, not just Roman Sionis, but specifically how he ever came about wearing a mask in the first place and like what exactly it was that happened there. And as he's in the middle of his monologue, the person that he's talking to is revealed not to be a person at all. It's actually a mannequin, which is really weird. But... Apparently, simply talking to a mannequin, that's not weird enough for Black Mask. No, no. He has to go one better by putting a mask on the mannequin. Just let that sink in for a little while. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> so we get a little bit of a flashback here in terms of what exactly it was that happened to Roman Sionis. And basically, he was caught in a fire. He got the shit burned out of his face. And so you can kind of infer that he wore a mask to or at least he continued wearing a mask, in part because it covers up his his disfigurement. But as he goes to pains to say, you know, at the beginning of this issue and then in other parts of this two-part story, this isn't just an idle thing for him. He really does get into the whole idea of of masks and stuff. And if you just look at, thing, uh, look at the idea of a mask, like just the concept of a mask from, I guess, a, a sociological standpoint... You know, different civilizations have different views of what wearing a mask means. You know, there are some there are some civilizations out there, and we've all heard about it, where wearing a mask is basically part of a, a storytelling ritual. You know, it's like becoming that character, and it's that character who then tells the story, you know? <clears throat> or, as it is in a good bit of the Western world, you know, wearing a mask... Basically, if you're wearing a mask, odds are you're doing one of two things. You're either celebrating Halloween or you're committing a crime of some kind, right? There's generally not too much of anything in between, right? And the idea of the uh, of any kind of a mask having a transformative, transcendent sort of ability, you know, having that kind of effect on people... I mean, I guess it may be true on an elliptic kind of scale where just implicitly people are going to are gonna behave differently if they're wearing a mask, which says all kinds of wacky things about us as a human race. But it is true. Most people will act at least slightly differently if they're wearing a mask and there's at least perceived 
anonymity to it, people will just be different. And so on the one hand, you know, this isn't something that the that a Western civilization seems to celebrate, but it is nevertheless a fact that Western civilization is willing to recognize. So make of that whatever you want. So anyway, moving right along with the with the story though, we get this really just creepy art on pages five and six, and it includes Black Mask taking off his mask and showing his uh, burned and scarred face, and he recounts how basically how it, how it ever came about that he ever got so burned up and disfigured in the first place. You know, he he explains for me it was a rebirth and fire the same element which killed my father, and which heated his death, his death mask until its contours were seared into the flesh of my face. Now I wear a mask to cover a mask, and to remind me of my father's beautiful death. And believe me, Circe, a father like mine can never die too many times. He worshipped order above all else. But I've taken my revenge, using the power of his own death to preside over chaos and crime. And at that point, because let's face it, the converse, or at least not the, the conversation, the monologue is starting to get a little windy here. Black Mask ends up getting interrupted by members of his gang escorting Johnny LaMonica, a.k.a. the Black Spider, uh, escorting him into the room so that basically Johnny can eh, apply for a job in the False Face Society. And Johnny's entire, entire shtick is... He's incredibly vain. I mean, he at least believes he's good looking. I mean, you know, and I guess from an artistic standpoint, I don't know. It's all sort of relative, I guess. But uh, he at least believes he's he's Mr. Hot Stuff. So what he says, and it, obviously this isn't really true at all, but what he says is he's he's paying Black Mask a visit specifically to get a job. You know, he wants a position in the False Face Society. And... Black Mask doesn't buy that right away, but he's at least willing to give LaMonica a, a chance. So he basically says, look, you can show up at Bruce Wayne's costume party, kill somebody there, somebody whose name isn't Bruce Wayne, and yeah, then I'll let you join, uh, I'll let you join the False Face Society. We got a deal. And it becomes pretty evident that yes, they do in fact have a deal, you know? But, and this is getting into... uh God, what is this page? This page number, page eight. LaMonica asks, basically, how do I, how do I pick a murder victim at the party? And Black Mask basically gets very sarcastic with him and says, "Try eeny meeny miny mo." So basically, don't kill Bruce Wayne, but anyone else you see there, yeah, they're fair game. So normally this wouldn't be such a huge problem, except that guys, at this point in continuity, Alfred had. Uh, well, he basically quit. He wasn't working for Bruce Wayne anymore. So Bruce was basically living all by himself. And as becomes clear in the story, Bruce has no idea how to manage his own day-to-day -day life. He's really good at being Batman, but this is a guy that he probably doesn't even know how his cell phone bill gets paid each month, you know? Uh, usually he tells Alfred to do something and then Alfred just takes care of it. And so this is a guy who doesn't really know how to how to function, you know, how to run his own home, you know? And I kind of like that. And that actually becomes very relevant to this story because Alfred, well, you know what, we'll circle back to that. So anyway, 
moving on from there, on page 10, Bullock gets released from the hospital. And we're going to be circling back to Bullock a little bit as time goes goes by in, in this episode. But anyway, just keep that in mind for what comes later. Bullock has been released from the hospital following a heart attack. Meanwhile, back at back at Wayne Manor, the costume party is in full swing, and even though it's getting relatively late at night, the guest ha- the guests haven't even stopped arriving yet, let alone started leaving. And Bruce thinks to himself that he may never get a chance to change masks tonight. He's wandering around the party, and he's basically wearing what looks like a court jester outfit. And the weird thing about it is his entire face is covered, and yet everybody there seems to recognize that it is Bruce Wayne under the mask. And this kind of riffs on an idea that Tim Burton kind of played with a little bit in Batman Returns, but in reverse, where Batman attend or Bruce, I should say, uh, he attends Max Shrek's uh, masquerade ball, and he and Selina are the only people who show up not wearing costumes because simply by showing up as Bruce Wayne and Selina, they're already wearing disguises. Their masks are their regular faces. Their true faces are their Catwoman and Batman masks, respectively, you know? And we're getting that, I guess, the sort of inverse in that here, where even though Bruce is wearing a mask that covers his entire face and head, everybody still recognizes him as Bruce Wayne, because Bruce Wayne is already a facade to begin with. He's Batman. In the inner core of his of his being, in his soul, this man is Batman, you know? And I just, I don't know. I mean, this isn't really as on the nose as uh, Tim Burton was in Batman Returns, and so I think that's why I kind of like this a little bit better. It's not overplayed. I mean, it happens a couple of times, often enough so that you you recognize that this isn't an isolated incident. People really can see through Bruce Wayne's costume. You know, it should be a disguise, but it's not, you know? So, anyway. Elsewhere, or actually, not elsewhere, later at a, at a, the costume party, Batman meets Madeline Corbett. And the significance of Madeline, it, 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 it comes back up later on in the story, or... or not in this story, not this two-parter that we're working through right now, but it comes up later on, I guess, in continuity. You know, uh, Madeline Corbett, basically she becomes one of Bruce Wayne's fairly close associates, and in short order, some serious shit goes down with Madeline Corbett. I don't really want to get too much into that here, except because, you know, I may actually talk about that, that story at some point on my podcast, and I want to leave something for that, but Suffice it to say, this is her first appearance, but some big shit comes out of Madeline Corbett as a character. Let's say that. So, anyway. Basically, though, at least in in this issue, she sort of acts kind of creepy, to be honest with you, you know? Actually, and you know what? This is not her first appearance. I take that back. I just remembered that I'm blanking on the exact issue number, but it was either Batman 516 or Batman 517 where she makes her first appearance. So make of that, I guess, whatever you like. But, you know, the point is, you know, she's... This is actually at least her second appearance, and she's going to pop up a few more times before all said and done. And her story, it has a pretty a, a pretty big conclusion to it, you know? There's a pretty big ending coming for uh, 
Madeline Corbett, said Magnus mysteriously. So anyway, Bruce doesn't really know what to make of her, so he excuses himself and continues uh, uh, wandering around the party. As he does so, he reflects to himself that, you know what? Son of a bitch, everybody seems like they can see through my see through my mask. Maybe Bruce Wayne can't wear a mask because Bruce Wayne is a mask. Maybe it only works as the Batman because I am the Batman and everything else is just a disguise. And yeah, you know what? I I believe that. You know, I've always kind of viewed Bruce Wayne at least as a public figure as sort of Batman's front man. Bruce Wayne is basically the guy that can do the things that Batman really can't. Like if if Batman decides that he wants to, I don't know, uh, support inner city children and pay for their college education, well, Batman really can't do that. But Bruce Wayne can. And so basically, Bruce Wayne, as I guess as a public figure, he's basically a figment of Batman's imagination that allows... Batman to do things that Batman as a public figure can't do, you know? And I kind of like the dichotomy of that simply because it it kind of works in parallel and yet contrast to how I view Superman versus Clark, you know? The things that Clark does versus the thing that Superman the Superman uh, does, right? And how each separate identity has a distinctive purpose in this man's life. So anyway, Elsewhere, Commissioner Gordon meets up with uh, Mayor Kroll, and the short version of this is Kroll has been riding Gordon's balls about about associating with Batman. Now, again, you know, post-Night Quest, post-Night's End, Commissioner Gordon, it, w- it would be fair to say that Commissioner Gordon is kind of miffed at Batman, you know, for leaving him in the dark, and I guess, I guess that's number one. Number two... Sending in an unhinged lunatic like Jean-Paul Valley to serve as the temporary Batman or the replacement Batman. And the act of doing all of that has... It's had the effect of alienating Gordon from Batman. Batman's still eager to work with Gordon, but for once, the feeling really isn't all that mutual. And I guess what I like about that is it gives Gordon something to do in the story besides uh, be Mr. Exposition and impart useful information that Batman needs to know. It gives them character, you know? And you can go overboard with that type of thing, but, you know, I guess in the final analysis, what I like about this is the fact that it this story remembers that Gordon is a person, and he has ideas, he has thoughts, he has feelings, and he doesn't take kindly to, as he views it, to being betrayed you know so anyway moving on from there bullock returns to uh, police headquarters and he gets a couple of surprises from the the uh, other cops that are on duty at that moment but one of one of the participants is not commissioner gordon because he has just gotten back from his meeting with the mayor and locks himself up in his office and refuses to come out or, for that matter, talk to anybody. So, yeah, needless to say, he's in a little bit of a bad mood. So, anyway. <clears throat> Meanwhile, back at Wayne Manor, uh, Johnny LaMonica draws a bead on one of one of Bruce Wayne's guests, which is to say J. Devlin Davenport, 
Basically, Johnny LaMonica tries to shoot J. Devlin Dav Davenport, but he's not successful because Bruce saw what was about to happen. He pretended to trip and uh, crashed into Davenport near uh, and pretty much knocked him over, which saved his life. So, yay. After that, the chase is on. Batman pursues Johnny LaMonica uh, through the Wayne Manor grounds, and as he does so... He reflects to himself, someone else crashed this party. A would-be murderer in Spider-Face, and there he goes, starting for the woods. Living Bruce Wayne's life without help is becoming dangerous. Alfred would have known who was invited, and he would have made it his business to identify everyone under their masks, alerting me to any intruders. But I don't pay attention to Bruce Wayne's affairs. I don't have the time and my focus is always elsewhere, on the dark affairs of the Batman. And that's pretty much what we see, you know? Batman pursues uh, LaMonica through the woods, crashes down on him from above, and after that, the fight's on. Now, this is one of those things that sort of defies rational analysis. I guess just to increase the action quotient, Doug Minch needs for Batman to, to fight Johnny LaMonica, and he needs for LaMonica to find a way to escape, right? And let's face it, Batman is one of the most skilled fighters in the entire world, maybe the most skilled fighter. And so it's it seems unlikely, at least to me, that LaMonica would be able to uh, kick Batman's ass or anything like that. So instead, what Minch does is he, temp he, he uh, finds a way to temporarily distract Batman so that LaMonica can give him the give him the slip and then he throws in I guess the little bonus of Bruce Wayne has got to go back to the party in order to let the police in and give a statement and all that fun stuff you know and so this is another occasion when Bruce's like Bruce Wayne and his life and his his issues somewhat intrude upon Batman and I kind of like that you know the the idea that you know, this guy is just so mentally Batman that the idea of being Bruce Wayne and dealing with Bruce Wayne's problems and challenges and whatnot, it's like it just doesn't occur to him. You know what I mean? So, and I, I, I kind of like that. So, anyway. And that, I think, is pretty much it for Batman number, number 518. Now, to get into Batman number 519, cover date is June 1995. On sale date is April the 11th. 1995. Cover price is a buck 95. Penciler is Kelly Jones. Inker is John Beatty. Writer is Doug Mensch. Letterer is Todd Klein. Colorist is Gregory A. Wright. And editor is Denny O'Neill. Before I get into, I guess, the particulars of the story, though, you remember that uh, price increase I mentioned a second ago? Well, here you go. Basically, what DC decided to do is they they pretty much figured it's time to keep up with the Joneses, and so they began p uh, printing their comics on you know glossier paper stock and using a I guess an upgraded uh, coloring system, basically computerized coloring. And the reason for that is because Image Comics had had done that really from from their first launch up until. I don't think they've ever uh, done, uh, they've ever colored comics in the traditional way. And it's starting to affect, by this point, it's starting to affect the whole industry, such that 
the way that comics had been done up to this point, they can no longer be done that way. You know, it's time to upgrade the, the paper stock. It's time to upgrade the, uh, I guess, the, the coloring technology used on these comics. And so I guess people can love or they can hate the, the upgraded style. I, for one, just dig it. I enjoy it. Some people prefer newsprint, but I'm not one of them. So anyway... So that's all the information, like as far as background stuff concerning uh, Batman number 519. <laughs> Title is Black Spider, Web of Scars. Story synopsis is as follows. Mayor Kroll, hoping to win re-election, demotes Jim Gordon and replaces him as police, uh, as police commissioner with his own wife, Sarah Essen. Needless to say, the news doesn't exactly go over very well with the current commissioner of police, and so in a fit of rage, Gordon single-handedly takes down Tommy Mangles Manchester, which is to say, the most wanted man in all of Gotham City. After making the collar, Gordon turns in his badge and quits the police force. Elsewhere, Batman gets on the trail of Johnny LaMonica and his two bosses. He easily takes them down, meaning takes LaMonica down, but... Black Mask Escapes. The end. So, what did I think? Well, as I said before, the the cover for Batman number 518 is not in any way literal. Nothing like that really happens in the story. And I think the same thing can be said of the cover for Batman number 519, where we see the Black Spider, and that is, in case you're an idiot, that is Johnny LaMonica's alias, we see the Black Spider attempting to drown Batman. Now, nothing, like I say, nothing really like this happens in the story, and that's not good, it's not bad, it's simply true, you know? So, make of that whatever you want. So, the kind of neat thing about this cover, though, is how monochromatic it is. I mean, really from, I guess, about the halfway point down, you know, everything is this kind of slimy looking turgid green color and it really does help sell the illusion that batman is being held underwater and maybe he's drowning so big doings going on there so to get into this exact issue though basically la monica finishes up his meeting with with turk and really the point of this is to exposit the high points of what la monica was up to back in issue 518 simply because it's like the editor's rule says, you never know which comic is somebody's first comic. And so that's really the purpose of sequences like this. It establishes, or for that matter, reminds the reader of continuity. And it's just well done, you know. And the art, like really all, all the art that I've talked about up to this point is pretty creepy. But the art right here, this is page two, is especially creepy. You know, the shadows... And, you know, the textures of everything and the lighting, it's just fucking creepy to look at, you know? It looks more like a horror type of movie than I think it actually is. Because, again, I mean, if you just read this story, you know, like prima facie, this is pretty much a, this is pretty much a, a conventional crime story. And Batman has to solve the crime, you know? But... The way the, the art is drawn, it's just so ominous and spooky and kind of, like I say, just kind of horror movie-like, you know? So, anyway. Elsewhere, in the Batcave beneath Wayne Manor, 
Batman punches some buttons and, and reads stuff on his computer screens and basically just tries to figure out what exactly is happening with, well, with Johnny LaMonica. You know, where is the guy hiding out? Who, if not Black Mask, who is LaMonica working for? You know, he's not the kind that is going to go out there and try to kill somebody unless there's money at stake. And so that's really the, I guess, the primary sort of agenda that Bruce is working with. Getting into uh, pages... Uh, four, five, and and six. Mayor Kroll basically fires. Well, actually, pages four and five, I guess. Uh, Mayor Kroll basically fires uh, Gordon as the commissioner of police, simply because Gordon isn't really willing to reestablish uh, personal ties with the Batman again, and that's a piece that that that's a piece on the chessboard that Kroll thinks he just he he can't take the risk of just leaving it leaving it on the table he has to make sure that gordon is buddy buddy with batman once again so that at least in theory the crime rate will go down which will at least in theory make it easier for kroll himself to win election or re-election so this isn't really about so much you know putting the you know getting the band back together with uh, gordon and batman and it's not even really so much uh, upholding the public trust Basically, what Kroll wants to do is get reelected. You know, that's his real agenda here. You know, and this isn't really anything to do with a, a kind of selfless and genuine concern for the city and what happens with it. Basically, Kroll needs a a talking point that he can take out on the campaign trail with him, and really, Commissioner Gordon, Jim Gordon, is really just a pawn in all of that. So Gordon has made it clear, at least to Kroll, that he doesn't intend to reestablish uh, contact with Batman. And so because of that, Kroll says, get out, you're fired. So that's bad enough. But kind of rubbing salt in the wound is when Gordon finally puts two and two together and realizes that his replacement is going to be Sarah Gordon, his wife. Right? So... Overall, just this whole thing is sort of a mess, right? Gordon swings by Sarah's office, and then they somewhat have it out with each other. And as all of that's going on, uh, I don't know who, like which department would handle this like in real life. But basically, uh, somebody with a paint kit is scratching the name James off of the uh, police commissioner's office door. And... And what they're going to do is re uh, replace the word James with the word Sarah so that the the name on the office says Police Commissioner Sarah Gordon rather than Police Commissioner James Gordon. He's basically scratching off that one name. And you can call this, I guess, symbolism if you want. But when Gordon uh, storms out of the office, he slams the door behind him and breaks the, the pane of glass that's embedded in inside of uh, the door, right? But before getting into that, you know, there's this moment, and this actually comes, the, uh, this comes on page seven in panel three, where we get a semi-close-up of Sarah Essen, and she's given this weird, creepy smile. And look, I can appreciate the fact that, you know, whatever Kelly Jones is going for is whatever Kelly Jones is going for, but this was just a really weird moment, I must say. You know, I've never been able to wrap my mind around why Sarah Essen would look so ominous here on uh, 
again, this is page uh, seven, panel three. Sarah just looks kind of spooky, you know? So anyway, elsewhere, Batman gets a lead on where to find Johnny LaMonica, so he heads out on his way. Elsewhere, elsewhere, uh, Gordon gets a lead on Tommy Mangles Manchester, the most wanted man in Gotham City, and eventually pays him a visit uh, saying, well, basically you're under arrest. And that wasn't something that anybody was expecting Gordon to do, because let's face it, I mean, guys, that's a pretty extreme thing to do for the former commissioner of police, somebody's Gordon, uh, Gordon's age, to just head out into the night and single-handedly bust the most wanted man in the entire fucking city. So, nevertheless, that's what Gordon does. And one of the things that I like about this is that it it's a good reminder, if anybody needs it, that, you know, Gordon isn't... He wasn't always a desk... Uh, a desk cop, you know? Gordon had to make his bones on the street just like anybody else. And the simple fact of the matter is that you don't get to be where, where Gordon got first in Chicago and then ultimately in Gotham City by, by being a softie. You know, Gordon may not be on uh, Batman's level necessarily, but he's nevertheless a serious ass kicker, you know? And he proves it, you know? Not just to uh, uh, Tommy Manchester, and honestly, not even to the other cops in uh, the Gotham City Police Department. But I think as much as anything, he's reminding himself, you know, that he's not just Batman's little puppet, you know? Gordon can do things, and, you know, he is a good cop. He's a tough cop, you know? And it doesn't matter that he's getting up there a little bit in age. He can still kick some serious ass, and indeed, that's what he does. He breaks a bottle over uh, Manchester's head, uh, kicks him in the solar uh, plexus, and then gives him this really powerful um, uppercut to uh, the chin, and that's pretty much... I think by itself, that probably would have been it for uh, Mangles. But after that, uh, I don't even know what you call this, but that sort of double-fisted strike where you clench your hands together and slam them into somebody's collarbone. I, I, the idea being, I think, to break their collarbone and, you know, really put them down for the count. You know, it would be fair to say that good old Mangles is uh, going to be in a lot of pain tomorrow morning, you know, after the ass-kicking that he got from Gordon, so, anyway. Elsewhere, Batman closes in on uh, Black Mask's hideout, only to discover that LaMonica's gotten there first, and he's uh, taking out Black Mask's gang one by one by one. And, unfortunately for him, LaMonica didn't quite get everybody, because one of Black Mask's thugs tries getting the drop on Batman, but Batman pretty well uh, takes him down and demands to know where Black Mask can be found. And the answer to that is he can be found downstairs where LaMonica is already closing in on Black Mask and getting, getting ready to take him out. Batman sees all of this on page 18 and he has a, a little bit of a dilemma, you know? He sees LaMonica Unbeknownst to Black Mask, he sees LaMonica point a gun at Black Mask, and he asks himself, when is the right time for me to intervene in all of this? Do I throw my batarang now, or do I do it three seconds from now after 
after La Monica has shot and possibly killed Black Mask. And he throws the Batarang before uh, before uh, La Monica can, uh, can get a shot off. So as a result of that, the shot goes wild and completely misses uh, Black Mask. Black Mask makes a run for it, but the fight's on between Batman and La Monica. And again, this is one of those things where the story needs for this fight to be competitive. And so I just kind of buy into the fact that it is. But realistically, it's hard for me to believe that uh, somebody like La Monica could put up a meaningful fight against Batman, you know? But like I say, the story need, needs that to happen. So as, it, as all of this is unfolding, La Monica dives through a, a, a busted out mirror. In the process, he slashes the shit out of his face, which as I said earlier, this is a pretty severe punishment in as much as La Monica is probably the most vain man in all of Gotham. And so the fact that his face has been slashed into spaghetti, well, that's a fate worse than death for somebody as vain as La Monica. And that's page 22. But you know, before we end, what we see at the top of page 22 is Gordon dropping off uh, Tommy Manchester at, uh, at the police precinct. He basically says, in other words, book Tommy Mangles yourself because I quit. And that's basically the end of the issue. You know, the end of this little two-part story. And again, I love this story. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy uh, Kelly Jones's uh, overly gothic, just super dark and kind of moody atmospheric horror type art. I just eat this up with a spoon. This is I mean, I realize this is an acquired taste. I would never say otherwise. And honestly, it's not necessarily a, a, an art style that's appropriate for everything. But when it works, and it always works pretty well uh, when Doug Minch is the writer, but when it works, it works really well. And I just really dig it. So anyway, one of the things that I that I find kind of interesting about about this issue, though, is there does seem to be a theme of of uh, broken glass, broken windows, broken mirrors, you know, things like that. You know, uh, Two-Face, I keep saying Two-Face, Black Mask smashes out a, a, a mirror in, uh, in this issue. He uh, smashes out a mirror so as to make his escape. Uh, in last issue, uh, Batman, this is number 518? Yeah, in uh, Batman number 518, uh, La Monica uh, dives through a, a window at Wayne Manor, and that's his means of escape. Here in uh, Batman number 519, he dives through an already broken out uh, mirror, but that's supposed to be his means of escape. It becomes his means of incarceration here. That's how Batman uh, was ever able to catch him in this issue. There's Jim Gordon when he storms out of, now it's uh, Sarah's office, he slams the door behind him, which breaks out the window that had Commis Police Commissioner Sarah Gordon painted on it. It keeps happening in this two-parter, and it's... I don't know if this was intentional, but it happened so much that I kind of have to think there had to be some kind of awareness going on with all of this, you know? I, and Anyway, there's no deeper significance to that beyond the obvious, so I just wanted to throw all that out there and just see what comes back to me. But like I say, I love the art. I love how just dark and kind of horror-ish the art is. It's just, it, it, it's great. I love it. This is first-rate, top-quality stuff. You know, can't get enough of it. Eat it up with a spoon, so. 
Anyway, but I, I think that's basically it, though, as far as uh, Batman number 518 and number uh, 519 are concerned. So I think that's pretty much it for me on those comics. But as to next week, I'm not entirely sure what I want to talk about yet. I've got ideas for what I might be talking about next week, but no final decision yet. So, but whatever. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. So either way, I think that's pretty much it for me this week, guys. So bye, everyone. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy.